and welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. Today we do conclude our series in the book of Philippians. Uh, Do you know what an axiom is? An axiom? An axiom is a statement whose truth is itself evident. In other words, when somebody states an axiom, people go, oh, that's true. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, everybody, everybody knows that. Right? So let's, you know, I want to do a little something now. I want to show you some well-known axioms on screen. And if you agree with them, if you agree with them, if you think they're self-evident truths, I want you to do this. Well, that's true. So uh, I say something, blah, 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 and you go, well, that's true. Well, that's true. Okay, let's, let's look at some of these. A little interactive. This, you know, everybody's going to parties and stuff later. Let's, let's get everybody kind of going here. All right, half the people you know are below average. That's true. It has to be. I mean, that is a statement that is true, right? How about this? A day without sunshine is like, well, night. That's true, right? Uh, always remember that you are unique just like everybody else. That's true. Bills travel through the mail at twice the speed of checks. That's true. I, at least it seems like that for me. How about this one? Despite the cost of living, have you noticed how it remains so popular? That's true. Living. You know, that living remains really popular even though it's, it costs a lot. How about this one? The 50-50-90 rule. Have you heard about this one? Anytime you have a 50-50 chance of getting something right, there's a 90% probability you'll get it wrong. That's true. Right? If you think nobody cares about you, Try missing a couple of loan repayments. That's true. Um, those of you who are recent college grads, I was thinking about that. You're lonely. You're alone. You don't know. Maybe you're still looking for a job. You do have friends. You'll find out in about six months how many friends you do have. Okay? Just want you to know that. Um, how about this one? The latest survey shows that three out of four people make up 75% of the world's population. That's true. Light travels faster than sound. That's why some people appear bright until you hear them speak, right? That is true. The severity of the itch is proportional to the reach. Do you ever did like, right? That's true. Never do card tricks for the group you play poker with. That's true, all right? That is true. Monday is an awful way to spend one-seventh of your life, right? That is true. Success always occurs in private, but failure in full view. I found that true. That's true. Experience is something that you don't get until just after you need it, which is the truth. That's true. And how about this last one? To steal ideas from one person is plagiarism. To steal from many is research. That's true. I do it every single week, folks, i got to tell you. Research every week. Now, there's one more axiom that I want to add this morning. And if if I stated this axiom up front, almost nobody would go, that's true. You know, you just wouldn't. And Paul understood that. But you know what else Paul understood? If I had said this statement to the Apostle Paul, he'd go, that's true. 
Most of the time we wouldn't. All the time he would. He would say that's true. Uh, Here it is. Here's the statement. Here's the axiom. Ready? When we support God's programs, he unleashes his provisions. When we support God's programs, he unleashes his provisions. And you know what the Apostle Paul, if I ever said that to him, you know where he'd go? That's true. That's true. Paul wanted his readers, his last word, his last few words to them in this letter, he wanted them to know that. He wanted them to look at that statement, and he wanted them to get to the point where they would say, that's obviously true, everybody gets it, you don't have to tell us that, Paul. We, that's, we get it. You know, every, 50% of the population is above average, 50% of the population is below average. That's true. We all get that kind of statement. And he, because he wanted them to be blessed. He wanted them to look at that statement as they would any other true propositional statement. Because if they did, they'd have one of the keys to seeing God's blessed provisions introduced into their lives. Now, Paul was writing to the church, which by this time had been well established, the church in Philippi. And he's writing to them from jail at least four times. Four times he mentions in chapter 1 that he's in chains. Now, most scholars agree that the place of his imprisonment was the leading city of the Roman Empire, Rome, and he's writing around 62 A.D. Now, we know from tradition, we don't know from Scripture, but we know from tradition, we're pretty sure, what's the percentage, 90, 85 percent, I don't know, that Paul was let, was let go. Remember in chapter 1 he said, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be let go. He, was, he did appear before uh, uh, the emperor. He was let go, probably traveled to Spain, preached in Spain for a while, was rearrested and was executed two years later in 64 AD under the Neronian persecutions when, when Nero was just killing all the Christians. That's kind of the background. Now, a lot of time had passed between uh, the time that he had been with the church at Philippi and the time that he's now in chains in, in Rome. And he receives word of how the church at Philippi is doing through the mouth of a guy by the name of Epaphrodites. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about Epaphrodites. And he opens up the letter way back in April when we began this series. He opened up the letter in chapter 1 and verse 3 by saying this. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And therein lies the occasion of the letter. Every letter, every epistle in the New Testament there's a reason why it was written, purpose, the occasion. That's the occasion. It's in, it's in verse 3. He wants them to know how grateful he was uh, because of their partnership in the gospel. Now, the word partnership is alluding to the fact that they had helped him financially. They had partnered with him. They had released their resources to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he never forgot them for that. You know, when someone gives you a gift... Uh, it's always meaningful. But when someone gives you the gift and you know they can't afford it, <laughs> they give you some lavish gift and you're going, what did they do? Why did they do that? You know, if you, like your kids or something, you know, they work all week and they buy you, you know, dad's a Father's Day gift. And you, you're going, thank you, but you shouldn't have. And you really mean it. You shouldn't have. You should have saved that money. You know what? But it's so meaningful that you wanted to do this for me. See, the Apostle Paul, it was so much more meaningful to him because this was a poor church. This was a poverty-stricken church. They did not give out of, you know, their excess in the bank. They gave out of what little they have. They gave something so that Paul could have something. 
That's why they gave. Now, when we write a thank you letter, you, you, you've all written thank you notes, haven't you? Somebody gives you a gift, you write your thank you note. Uh, the way we do it is this. Dear John, thanks so much for the gift, man. It was, it was really kind of you. Hey, how's the family going? Haven't seen, seen you in a few weeks, blah, blah, this, that, and the other thing. In the ancient world, they did just the opposite. When they wrote a thank you note, which is what the book of Philippians is, they would say, hey, how's your family doing? What's going on? I've been doing this. Work is like this, blah, blah, the whole thing. And by the way, thanks so much. They, they reversed it. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the way we do it is more logical, I think. But back then, what Paul was doing it wasn't some, you know, like he's writing all about the things we've been talking about for the last couple of months. And then he said, oh, oh by the way. You know what, let me go into why, why I'm so thankful. He was following the regular writing of the day. This is what they, everybody did when they were writing a thank you note. So um, he wanted them to know how grateful he really was. And he wanted them to know that their gift had not only reached far away to Rome, but little, maybe little known to them, it was boomeranging back to them. They may not have seen it exactly right away, but he wanted them to know it's coming. You blessed me, guess what's going to happen? It's coming back to you. It's going to come right back home to you. And he wanted them to see what God brings to those who support his program on earth. Because when we support God's programs, he unleashes his provisions. And he provided, Paul said, three things. This is what they could kind of plan on. Uh, contentment, strength, and rewards. Contentment in circumstances... Strength through the trials and rewards in heaven. We're going to go over those three things, so let's get right into it. He provides contentment in the midst of uneven circumstances. He said this in verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul had learned to be content no matter what his financial or life situation was. You know, so often we're, we're guilty of just the opposite, aren't we? <laughs> you know, when there's plenty of money in the bank, when the kid's got a decent report card, things are going okay in the marriage and the job is pretty much stable. It's not perfect, but it's pretty much stable. Then we kind of feel, you know, kind of a general contentment. But when anything goes out of whack... All of a sudden, we feel this, eh, eh, right? We kind of feel like, you know, there's something wrong. I don't like this. This discontentment begins to bubble up inside of us. Do you know why? You know why discontentment bubbles up? Because we have a lust problem. And I'm not talking specifically or exclusively about sexual lust specifically. I'm talking about a craving for things. We constantly crave. And those lustful cravings left unfulfilled will impact us in a number of ways. You know, in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, the biggest problem for God's people was idol worship. They kept falling into idol worship with the, with the nations around them because they thought those idols, you know, would, would bring them things that they felt that they needed to live. And in the New Testament, you know what? We look at other things. It's not so much that we're bowing down to idols. We're not sacrificing our children. Well, in a certain way, sometimes we are. But we're, we're doing it differently now. But the cravings are still the same. See, in the Old Testament, they craved, so they bowed down to the Baals. 
In the New Testament, we crave and they craved. So they go after, you know, making as much money as they possibly could, getting the biggest house in the block, doing everything they have to do, getting the corner office. See, it's the same thing. In the Old Testament, if you, if you could almost do it, and I did this one time. Somebody one time challenged me years ago. Take idol in the Old Testament and uh, put lust for that word. I, I did that a lot. I started doing it. I'm going, gee, you know what? It's kind of, they're kind of interchangeable. Same thing in the New Testament. They're, they're kind of interchangeable. It's, it's craving after things. To be content. We're not content until we have things. And if we are like that all the time, James says that, you know what, all kinds of problems come with that. James chapter 4 and verse 1 says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When we ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Why can't you get a better job so that we can move out of this crummy place? What do you mean we can't afford it? That's all I ever hear. I deserve this. See, our constant companion is that voice inside of us that says, this is not enough. It is not enough. This thing over here is it. This thing will make me feel better. This thing will legitimize me. This thing will make me feel like a man. Will make me feel like a woman. A woman. Whatever it is, gotta have it. Have to have it now. Have you ever heard of the term retail therapy? Oh, you have obviously because you're laughing. Um, a few years ago. Uh, those of you who have been here for a while, when our church, our church was going through a very, very difficult time, we were uh, personally, and the church was, and I realized my wardrobe inc- increased by like 50%. This is the truth. And um, did I suddenly become a fashionista? The answer is no. But you know something? When I look back, I think it had something to do with the fact that I got a little jolt of happiness when I got that new shirt. Now, I know some guys go, it's cheaper than buying cars. And, you know, it's, I, a lot of guys are, are, are doing that. You know, when, when I bought something new, when I got something, when I purchased something new and shiny, it gave me a little jolt of happiness in what was for me a very, very unhappy time. Very unhappy. Now, if you would, would have come to me in that time, and you would have said to me, do you think clothes make you happy? I would, I would have been offended. I'm not kidding. If you would come to me and say, you know, what, what do you think clothes make you happy? I'm like, pastor, what do you think? I, I learned this a long time ago. I, 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 of course not. If, if someone had come to you and said, do you think money could make you happy? You know what almost everybody here would say? Of course not. Everybody knows the old axiom, money can't buy happiness. Everybody gets it. Folks, the reason that so many of us have financial challenges is that we have a lust problem. Paul's talking about this. We want more, and we want more. It reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 12. Remember the rich landowner? The guy had done really, really well in his business. He had so much that he doesn't even know what to do now. Should I start a new business? Should I do? I've known guys like this. What kind of business can I start now? You know? And so what he thought, he said, you know what? I know what I'll do. He's got to occupy his time, right? Uh, I'm going to tear down all my old barns and build new, bigger barns, and I'll fill those barns. He never contented. 
never enough, always searching, always looking. I was rereading the story of Esther this week. Great story, right? The Old Testament book of Esther. And Haman, well, I'm not going to go through the whole story, but Haman was the bad guy in the story. And he was honored above all the leaders of the kingdom. He was, you know, he was rich. He had like eight sons. I forget how many now. He had a bunch of, he had big family. Uh, when he would go through the streets, people would bow down. But there was one guy who wouldn't bow down, and his name was Mordecai. And so Haman goes home one day, and he's got wealth, and he's got riches, he's got influence, he's got the ear of the king. And his wife goes, what's the matter with you? He goes, I know I should be happy. I, I know I have everything. But this guy, Mordecai, makes me so unhappy. Every time I go down the street, everybody else bows down, but he doesn't. So they say, well, get rid of him. So he tried to get rid of him. Trying to get rid of him so that he would have it all was eventually his undoing. Go read the book of Esther. Had to have it. He had to have one more thing, just a little bit more. Always discontented. He had it all, but he had to have more. And yet here is this imprisoned apostle in verse 12 saying this, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so the question is, the question is, how did Paul learn such a lesson? How did he learn contentment in all? I know he's primarily talking about finances, but how did he learn contentment in all situations? Well, he learned to trust in the right thing. He learned to trust in God in his circumstances instead of trusting in money to change his circumstances. And that was the key. Let me, let me say it again. He learned to trust in God in his circumstances instead of trusting in money to change his situation. The psalmist in Psalm 121, verse 7, said this, The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now, the only way he was able to learn this lesson, the Apostle Paul, was to realize that God was with him in all situations, in all circumstances, even, even in prison. He came to understand that if he was following after God, if he was stumbling in the right direction, as we say here at the crossing, then whatever circumstances he found himself in, he was there by divine appointment. If he was hungry for a time, for a season, it was because God had ordained that for whatever reason, for whatever lessons that needed to be learned. If he had more than enough, it was because God had allowed that to happen. If there was more month left at the end of the money, God understood that. He got it. He, he knew all about that. He had ordained it. He had let it come about. And he promised, listen, he promised to care for Paul through it all. You know, at the very heart of discontentment, our discontentment, is I found a desire to control things. Everybody, as meek as they are, people, you know, some people say, well, you know, they're not an extrovert, they're an introvert, they're very meek. They want to control the situation. They do it in different ways. People do it in different ways. Some people do it like, you know, like this. 
And other people just, you know, they do the guilt thing or they, they go around, you know, they talk to this one. They, they. People want to be in control. And the reason that we want to be in control of this situation is because there's every reason to believe that if I don't control this situation, it may get out of hand. It may totally get out of hand, and then I'm going to be faced with something or someone who's not going to play along with my game plan, and we get very sad. We get very sad, and we get very discontented until somehow we could figure out how to remedy the situation. But see, Paul found a better way. Trust in God. Trust in God. So what was the practical outcome? What's the practical outcome for, for, for the life of this apostle? Which in verse 13. He said this. I can do a lot of things. <laughs> the important things. Some things. He said, I can do, and the word that he uses here is, is encompassing whatever, whatever the category you're talking about. It's every member of that category. It really doesn't matter what you're talking about. I can do everything and he's talking about things that God has called him to do. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, he wasn't referring to the fact that he could pick up a building with his left hand and play singles tennis with his right. He wasn't talking about that when he says, I can do everything. He was referring to the fact that if God called him to the task, if he put him in a certain life situation, if God is watching over me, Paul determined, then he will provide the necessary grace that I need to accomplish the task. That's what he was saying. Now, specifically in this case, God had called him uh, at times to live in great privation, even sometimes in hungering. Most couldn't do it, but since he knew that God had called him to it, he could go through it, and God's grace would be sufficient. That's what he's saying. In lean times, in full times, down times, up times, the apostle Paul probably never pictured himself. You know what? I bet you he never pictured himself beat up for his faith. When he came to faith in Jesus, he said, well, you know what? Times may get tough. You think he thought they were going to stretch him out and 39 lashes? He was going to get on his back several times, shipwrecked, okay, hungering. Did you ever think that he thought he was going to have to work all day making tents until his fingers were just about bleeding so that he had the privilege of preaching all night into the wee hours? Did you ever think that, that he planned on living a large part of his later life a step ahead of those who wanted to constantly kill him? Instead of traveling, smart guy, Paul, even secular people say Paul was one of the most brilliant men who ever lived. Instead of, you know, living a life where he's traveling and conversing with scholars, you know, the smart guys, they have, they have a little tea, whatever they do. You know, back then, you know, and then they sit and they, they discuss the things of life. They discuss. That's what they used to do. And, you know, instead of doing that, you know, writing books and classics, and instead he's spending long periods of time confined to a cell where his greatest desire was reduced to, Timothy, can you bring me a blanket? Because some nights are really cold. It's really cold at night. But he learned to trust God. And he learned to understand that God was in every circumstance. And that if God called him to a task, if he put him in a certain life situation, even though it may be grievous at the moment, he would provide the necessary grace to see him. Paul had learned to trust God in the circumstances instead of, instead of 
doing you know, what we do. We trust in ourselves and our connections and our wit and our good looks and our intelligence in uh, our money to change the situations and the circumstances. And when the Apostle Paul had learned that lesson, it made all the difference in the world. Sitting chained between two Roman guards, you know, owning very little, very little by way of this world's goods, he was a contented man because of where he had placed his trust. He was a contented man. Paul had taken the advice of Jesus. Jesus, some years before, had said, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, we run after things thinking that they're going to bring contentment, but when we catch them, they evaporate like the morning mist. The apostle Paul wrote to a young preacher in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he said this. He said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Contentment in the midst of uneven circumstances, contentment in the midst of trouble. When we support God's program, he has promised he will unleash his provisions. One of the things he unleashes is contentment. Second, he provides strength in times of trouble, the Apostle Paul said. Uh, strength in times of trouble. What's your greatest need this morning? If I took the microphone and ran up and down the aisles, you know, like a game show host, say, what's your greatest need? And if you were honest, like if somebody gave you truth serum, nobody would do this. But if, 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 if somebody gave you truth serum or something and you had to say what your greatest need was, you were honest enough or, or drugged enough to, you know, to, ha to have to do something like that, you know, who knows what you would say. You, you know, some of you, it would be financial. Some of them, it's physical, relational issue. You're scared to death over a loved one. You're afraid that you're not loved, or that you'll never be loved. got an email from a successful, very successful Christian businessman a while back. He wrote to me, he said this. He said, despite the fact that I have 250 Facebook friends, I am one of the loneliest people I know. If we ran up and down the aisles this morning, we'd all be able to pinpoint one or two things that we would say, this is my greatest need. It, it's this situation. I don't know how much longer I could, I could hold out with this. And if I went up and down the aisles this morning and asked each one of you to grab that microphone and to speak in a loud, clear voice what your greatest need was, and if by chance you did speak the truth and you said, you know, for instance, if you said it's relational, you know what I would say? No, it's not. If somebody said, you know what, it's financial, Pastor Tim, i go, no, it's not. Now, and I would also hasten to say, listen, I'm not making light of your situation. Believe me. I, I, no, no matter what it was, you know, that you think your greatest needs are. I, I, I would not be, I, I'm not belittling your pain, uh, but I would have to say, sister, it ain't your greatest need. It's not. It's my job situation. It's a physical challenge. It's an academic test. No, no, no. That's what I would say. Why would I say that? Because I read ahead in Philippians. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 says this. He spelled it out, our greatest need. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything 
through him who gives me strength. This was Paul's understanding of our greatest need. The ability to face all circumstances through the one who has promised to give you strength. See, that's what the Apostle Paul said is our greatest need. Because that, you know what that encompasses? Everything. Right? Everything. The one who is powerful enough to subject all things to himself, he said in chapter 3, verse 2. Who enabled uh, Paul to face the most difficult circumstances, he says right here in verse 13. He's writing to a church that's poverty-stricken. He's writing to a church that's persecuted in chapter 1. He's writing to a church that is somewhat divided. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. But God will meet their needs out of his limitless resources. This is the ultimate need of God's people. This is the primary sense which we are to understand this promise. Frank Thielman, theologian, wrote this. He said, God supplies the needs of his people by giving them the resources to cope with hardship. Hardship tempts us to think that God is unmoved by our plight or is against us, and so we despair. Thus, when we experience difficult times, we need the moderating presence of God who shows us by the cross of Christ that he is for us, not against us, and that he was so filled with love for us that he sent his son to die on our behalf. If this powerful truth dominates our lives, then we can face even the ultimate human hardship with the equanimity of Paul, and we can rest assured that God is conducting us toward salvation even in the midst of our hardship. Remember, uh, some years ago, uh, I received a call from a very dear woman. There's probably, yeah, maybe eight people in our church. Uh, they're probably not even, not even all here today. Who, if I mentioned her name, would know this woman. Uh, used to come to our church. Very, very sporadically came to our church, but always considered us her church. But she couldn't come to our church because of what I'm about to tell you. Uh, she had a son who was both mentally and physically handicapped. Uh, he had Down syndrome. Uh, she used to travel every single weekend, every single weekend, to the facility that he was in in Pennsylvania. I went with her one time and toured the facility and, you know, met her son and, you know, the whole thing. And, and I said to myself, man, this woman does this. She, 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 she goes on Saturday morning, gets a hotel room every Saturday night, stays in the mall Sunday, then, then comes home. I mean, she's doing this, how, how many years you've been doing this? This whole adult life, okay? And she used to do this. And I remember uh, there was uh, one particular uh, weekend that she called me on the phone, and she was, she was all excited. Her son, who was 50 years old. Now, you know anything about Down syndrome? Uh, th this, this guy was alive in large part because of mom, C totally convinced. You know, her prayers her love, her concern. She's the one who, you know, the doctors, you know, you know the one who no, doesn't ever have anybody visit them. They kind of get, you know this, right? They kind of get shoved to the side. But if you got somebody who's over there, hey, you know what? Does he have enough blanket? Is he warm enough? Is he, has he been washed? How many times did he take a shot? You got somebody like that, they see you coming, they go, oh, you know, what's her name's coming? You know, I, let's, and, and so I, I think her care for her son kept him alive this many years. And she was so excited when she made that phone call to me because she was going to have her son home for Christmas. She was bringing him home for three days. She got a ramp built outside of her home so that he could, they could wheel him up. And she, she had, she had uh, gotten a guy who was going to uh, stay with them for the three days. And, and you know, uh, all of a sudden, just before he was about to come home, he got pneumonia. 
and he had to go into the hospital. And, and for the first time that I had ever, I'd known this woman for years, for the first time in entire life, uh, and she had been flooded out by Hurricane Floyd. Her home was flooded out a short time before with Hurricane Floyd. So you, you know what happens when that happens. You know, your whole house has got to be redone. The whole, you know. so, and now this happens, and she's on the phone, and she begins to break down. And I remember saying to myself, well, <laughs> I've been waiting for this. I mean, I can't believe it, it lasted this long, that she, that she was this strong this long. And she began to weep. And I said, she's, you know, she's reached the breaking point. And then she said, she stopped crying. She was able to compose herself a little bit. She said, I know that I couldn't have made it through this year without my Lord's strength and help. And I will go. I guess it's true. I guess it's true. When we support God's program, he unleashes his provisions. And one of his provisions is strength through our trials. One more. Credit. Credit. When, when, when we support God's program, he, he credits our account, our eternal account. Paul understood that there was a human element to all of this. He said in verse 14, yet, here's the human element. It was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of our acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again, when I was in need. Believers from Philippi popped on the Ignatian Way and traveled 95 miles by foot uh, you know, to Thessalonica to assist Paul with his material needs. Do you, now, do you, think, do you think that the Philippian Christians, as they gathered their meager earnings together, whatever they possibly could get together to send the apostle, ever thought that 2,000 years from now, there's going to be people sitting in the U.S., thousands of miles away from here, and, you know, they're going to be looking at us and saying, man, those people are great. They're amazing. Right? You know, you think anybody, did you think that, that they thought that anybody outside of Paul was even going to know what they did? No. They did it anonymously. They did it from their heart. They did it because they loved the, the apostle and they loved God and they loved the gospel. He said this in verse 17. He said, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. God is interested in every cent given. Every cent. He records everything that is done under the proper name. And he rewards accordingly. I was reminded this week of the story in Luke chapter 21. I was, I was reading it, actually. Jesus one day stood in the temple area and saw something that prompted him to utter a truth that forever put into perspective God's view of giving to his program. It said in Luke chapter 21 and verse 1, it said this. As he looked up, Jesus saw a rich, uh, the rich putting their gifts. Remember this, remember this story? Putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow uh, put in two very small copper coins. Those two copper coins were called uh, leptas. A lepta was the smallest denomination of currency. It was like a penny. Okay, that's, that's our smallest denomination is pennies. Nobody even uses People use pennies, I guess. You know, I got 50,000 of them in a jar, I think, at home. You know, someday I'll go out and 
have lunch with it. And she gave two. She gave two of the smallest. Basically, a lepta was one one-hundredth of a denarius. One one-hundredth, or about five minutes of work for a minimum wage laborer. Five minutes of work during the day, a full 10-hour day. You know, that's how much it was worth. The only way that she could have given a smaller amount would have been if she only gave one lepta. <laughs> that's the only way she could have given a smaller amount. It says in verse 3, Jesus' view, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, he wasn't rebuking. It's not like in Sunday school. When I was a kid in Sunday school, they gave you the little paper and this story, and the, the people who were putting in uh, the coins, eh, you know, they looked mean and, and nasty. It was like, no, they're not. I don't know. I don't, know. I, I don't get it. I don't know why they did that. But I always said, oh, these people have put a lot of money in. They're, they're terrible. It wasn't that at all. He wasn't knocking them. He was just saying that this woman, there was something about her gift that was especially praiseworthy. God's method of accounting is just different than ours. When people give to the crossing to support uh, its ministry, Renew Life Center, or, or when we partner with this church in Guatemala, which you're going to be hearing about a lot in the coming weeks, or when we open our building for an after-school program, which begins September 6th, we'll be talking a lot about that, which is going to have a definite gospel element to it. Okay, when we talk about supporting missionaries in Papua New Guinea, in Mozambique, wherever, you have no idea how rich you are making yourself, Paul is saying, in heaven. You have no idea. Think about it. We, are, we all, look, we all get the, the, the understanding that things that cost the most aren't uh, the most valuable. If your house was on fire... Um, and you can get in. You, you know what? You, it wasn't quite engulfed in flames yet. It was gone fire. You saw the smoke. You got to get in there. Everybody's out. Okay, one, two, three. The whole family's out. Dog's out. Cat's out. Uh, well, I'll leave the cat in. But anyway, uh, everybody's out, okay? Everybody's out. Uh, and, and you, you got a chance to go in and, and save your expensive stereo system or went in to save that folder that you saved with all your kids' drawings when they were growing up, you know, when they were three years old, four years old, five years old. What you grabbing? You can grab one thing. What are you grabbing? Somebody said stereo system. Thank you. Okay. You know, your kids maybe weren't, weren't writing. But most of us would just grab that folder, right? We'd grab that folder. Sometimes little seemingly insignificant gifts are of much greater value than the big ones. Sometimes more sacrifice has gone into them. Daryl Bach wrote this. He said, when God measures the life of service... He does not just count, he weighs. That's a different accounting method. For Jesus, that woman, and everybody who follows her lead, gave heavily to the kingdom of God and then would be rewarded heavily. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Every time I go to use this verse, I've used it in the past. I, I'm, I'm reluctant because the health and wealth gospel preachers always use this verse. And so, you know, whenever they're using it, they use it all the time. I go, ah, I'm going to go away from that. I don't care how true it is. I'm just I'm not going to use it. But there, is, there are things in there that are just, they're so important. He said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, 
shaken together and running over. They used to go and say, all right, fill me up with the wheat. They'd come in, in, into the, uh, the market, fill it up, fill it up. And as she's filling it up, you know, the vendor, he's doing this business, you know. I mean, why is he doing this? Well, it's going to fill it up. You're paying by the basket, so he might as well cram it down. He probably sat on it. He probably shoved it with his elbow a few times, right? Let's get as much as we can in there. Shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, can we really, you know, does this, is this saying, like it's so improperly used sometimes, well, if you give $10, God's going to give you 100 You know, he's going he's to give you 100 bucks. And you know what? Sometimes that has even happened to me. When I have given sacrificially, all of a sudden, you know, God has gifted us. And, and he's, he's done, you know, amazing things for us. But sometimes it was like we look back and we say, we don't even know how we gave that year. We don't, we, you know, years ago, we don't know how we gave. But then we look at the, the doctor bills and we said, man, you know what? Kids were hardly ever at the doctors. What if that has something to do with the other? See, uh, can we really compare in addition to like our earthly house, to the promised reward in heaven, the riches of knowing the will of God in our life. Folks, listen, when we support God's program, he unleashes his provisions. He said this in verse 18, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. The picture is the aroma is like it's, uh, you know, the gift, it's like a, a burnt offering and it's going to heaven and God's going, oh, that is sweet. The Apostle Paul also wrote in Ephesians. He used the exact same words, the only time in Scripture. Now, if it's the same author using the same words, uh, he's probably trying to make some kind of connection between that, and he said in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he said, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as, here it is, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, properly offered, a fragrant sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul put into perspective the sacrifice that the Philippian Christians had made for Paul by describing what it meant to God. It ascended at a, as a fragrant sacrifice to him that was both acceptable and well-pleasing, even as his own son's sacrifice for us was acceptable and well-pleasing. By the way, well-pleasing, well-pleasing, you know what it means? It means fully pleasing completely pleasing. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his own life becoming our substitute was fully pleasing and it was all that was needed to make a way to God when there was no way to God for sinners. That is why we remember. That's why we're doing this in a couple of minutes. That's why we cling to the cross. It's the only reason that we will ever be Marked as acceptable when we stand before the gate of heaven and, and, and the gatekeeper, I don't think it's St. Peter, but the gatekeeper, you know, probably God himself says, why should I let you into my heaven? Because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's the only thing that's going to matter. That's the, only, that's the only acceptable answer. Nothing that I do, I bring to the only to the cross, I cling. Hold on to Christ. If you do, you will be well pleasing. Now, let me bring it home. 
Paul's conclusion to the whole matter, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. This is one of the more well-known verses in this letter. We quote it all the time. It's on plaques. You might have a plaque at home, something. You know, it's, it, it's there. It follows the description of the faithful and sacrificial steward. They had given even to the point of endangering their own future. And for those people, it says God will supply their every need, which points to all their needs, not just material, to all their needs. When we support God's program, he unleashes his provisions. I was speaking to someone who, I guess because they think I'm a pastor, like some people think I'm an expert on other things that like I have no idea about. They're asking me financial advice. I'm like, oh gosh, you got to be kidding me, you know. So they're saying, you know, I have this money. Pastor, what do you think I should invest it? I'm like... I don't know, but I could, you know, I, I, I know a couple of people who are probably good. But I said, well, I guess, you know, I had to say something. I said, I guess in a kind of a safe, fixed CD, something, you know, something that's, you're not going to lose it. Don't stock markets up and down, blah, blah, the whole thing. And the person thought for a second. Then they said to me, I guess the only safe investment is in the kingdom of God. And being a preacher, I said, can I use that for a sermon one? Can I use that? Because I'm, I'm always looking for illustration. He goes, yeah, you could, use, you, could, you could use it. I didn't tell you that for that, but, you know, you could use it. He's right. He's absolutely right. His riches cannot be measured. It's like a little boy. When he talks about the riches of God, it's like taking a little kid, a little boy, and throwing him into Dunkin' Donuts, Baskin Robbins. You know, you always see them together. Just throwing him in and say, his mom saying, you know what? Uh, these people are going to go for break now. Just, you can have anything you want. You want to have donuts, you want to have ice cream, you want to, have, you know, you want to make yourself sick. Well, just go in. You know, it's, it's, it's like this superabundance of, you must be kidding me. You know? Are you it's like a guy, a, a, a trout fisher, who goes, you know, steps in with those big heavy waders. And you know, these, these 12 to 14 inch trouts are banging against his legs while he's baiting up. You know? And he's going, this is, this is incredible. This is, more than, this is almost like I can't even believe this. You know? One can only catch a faint glimmer of what Paul here is recognizing of God's wealth and his lavish love for his people expressed to the fullest in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Do you know what an axiom is? An axiom is a statement that when you hear it, people will go, that's true. Yeah, of course, we all know that. Here's one for you. When we support God's program, he promises that he will unleash his provisions now and forever straight into 